Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Jude Sutherland-Kessler, the author of the John Lennon series. I wanted to get Jude on as she's undertaking this incredible task. She's writing John Lennon's life story, but she's writing it as a historical narrative, which is basically the practice of writing history in a story-based form. Her books are written as novels, almost. I was especially interested to talk to Jude when I found out that she started the research for this in 1986. She discusses the rewards and the challenges of writing John's story in this way, and we focus on the latest book in her series, Shades of Life, which is set in 1965. Jude Sutherland-Kessler, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I am wonderful, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on the program. I just mentioned to you before we went on the air, I am a huge fan, love your podcast, and I I rarely ask my agent to get me on any particular show because I'm happy to talk about John on any venue, but I wrote to her months ago and said, this is one show that I really respect. I would really like to be on if if you can work your magic. So thank you very, very much for having me on. Absolutely. My pleasure, Jude. So we're here to talk about your John Lennon series of books. Before we do that, I think it's interesting, always interesting to go back to the start of people's Beatles journey. Uh, Tell us a little bit about when and how you discovered the Beatles and were you instantly drawn toward John of the four of them? Well, actually, it was before the Beatles even came to America, before the advent of the Ed Sullivan show. It was back in December of 1963. And I definitely was not the kind of person that would have been a Beatles fan because I was a very studious girl. I was that girl that came to school early to work in the library and shelve books And I always would do chores for the teacher before school. That girl, you know that girl. (laughs) And so I was very studious, uh, very serious about, I remember remember approaching my parents at one point and saying, this girl, Susan Jo Morris, got to skip a grade. I want to skip a grade. And they're like, "Uh, no, we don't want you to do that. I was really into the scholarship part of even elementary school. So I got off the school bus one morning in December, and a group of my friends just swarmed me and said, these are the Beatles. It was a 45 picture cover, the one with George's arm outstretched, and everybody's in love with them. You have to pick one to fall in love with by recess. I was like, what? Fall in love before recess? So I took the picture and I put it on my desk and I looked at it and I mean, I really didn't care, but they, there was all this pressure to fall in love by recess. So at recess, I picked George and they went, oh, you could just tell I had disappointed everyone. <laughs> so I said, can you just give me 24 hours? Can I just t- give you my pick tomorrow? And being the researcher that I was even then, I went home and I called all of their big sisters and said, tell me about the Beatles. And, you know, they went through the whole thing, what they knew. We didn't know very much in December of 1963. We didn't know nearly what we would know a year later, but they told me what they knew. And I sussed out that John was the leader Beatle, that he had basically formed the group and he was labeled quote unquote, the smart Beatle. And so I went back to school the next day and said, no, I've changed my mind. It's not George, it's John. 
just based on that information. And little did I know at that point that John's story would be the one that I would be drawn to. If you go back and read his story, I think people who are non-Beatles fans don't realize that behind the Beatles story is the story of a little boy for whom so many people should have been there and they were not. Not because they didn't want to be, but because very complicated circumstances kept them from being there. Um, Fred Lennon wanted to be with his son, but Fred loved John and wanted to be with him and would have taken him to New Zealand and would have been a great dad to him. I mean, he loved him. But John doesn't know that because once Fred is gone, Mimi destroys all the letters that Fred writes, and he thinks his father's abandoned him. His mother, he has no idea that Pop Stanley, her father, has said, you are not going to have this boy. You're not responsible. You're going out, you're playing your banjo in the pubs at night. You're leaving him alone. You don't have a proper place for him to live. You're living, quote unquote, 1950s in sin because she's asked for a divorce, but she's been refused the divorce and she's living with the man that she's in love with. So Pop Stanley makes this mandate that John is going to live with Mimi and George Smith in Mendips. That John never understands or knows. In fact, Julia Baird didn't even know it until just a few years ago when her aunt was dying and said, I have something I want to tell you. Had John known that both of his parents wanted him, that both of his parents loved him, we probably wouldn't have the catalog of music that we have. Because he tells you in the White Album, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. He is on a mission to prove to her, even though she's not around, to prove to her that he is worthy, he is smart, he is intelligent, he has become successful, and she should have loved him, and that his dad should have loved him, and everyone should have loved him. Mimi is throwing his artwork away when he's probably what we would consider middle school age. And he says to her, you're going to be sorry that you did that someday, because I'm going to be famous, and you're going to wish you had that stuff. Everybody was throwing him away in his eyes, and he is out to prove that he can get to the toppermost of the toppermost, that he can be bigger than Elvis. And you people are going to be sorry. You know, listen to the words till I cry instead. I've got a chip on my shoulder that's bigger than my feet. I can't talk to people that I meet. If I can give my way, I'd get myself locked up today, but I can't. So I cry instead. He's out to break hearts all around the world and show you what your loving man can do. He's out to prove a point. And it's because of that little boy. So, you know, that child is the one that we we took into our home and that I've tried to tell his story, share his story. I want other people to read it than just Beatles fans. And that's why I chose the format that I did, because I want people that don't know the Beatles or don't really know John to love that little boy who took tragedy and turned it into something amazing. Mm. So when I looked on your on your website, it, it said that this the idea for this project, you started to work on this project in 1986 uh, which obviously is a fair while ago now tell us a little bit about where the idea for this this series of books kind of came from I um of course stayed a Beatles fan all my life and Mm. you know I when I went to college I my parents both worked so every summer I went to summer school so they'd have some place to put me well 
<laughs> and by the time I reached the 12th grade, I'd taken all the courses there were to take. So I went on to college a year early and I knew that I wanted to write a book very much like James Michener's book that incorporated history and fact, but presented it in a narrative format or Irving Stone's amazing books like his um, Lust for Life on Vincent Van Gogh that for those, those who loved all of the books about Lincoln and Adams and, and the great world figures, especially Michelangelo. I wanted to tell someone's story in a narrative form. And so I majored in both history and English, got two separate degrees so that I would be prepared to do this. What I didn't know was whose story I wanted to tell. And when I finally got to the point where I thought, okay, I'm ready to start working on this. Surely it'll only take me a few years and, you know, I can move on to another book of this nature. I thought, who do I really know a lot about? John Lennon. I know everything about John Lennon. I <laughs> knew zero about John Lennon. I knew so nothing about John Lennon. So I started collecting books. Um, I got, at that time, there were audio tapes. I got, you know, when DVDs came along, DVDs and CDs and and magazines, periodicals, and you name it, and just collected as much as I could and started doing the research. And after I had researched it about 15 or 16 years, I realized there is no way I can tell this story until I go to Liverpool. I have to know where the Empire Theater is in relation to the grapes or to Matthew Street or the bus lines? How would they get there? How would these young boys going to audition in the empire, how would they get there? What would they see on the way? What places would they pass? What a city center look like? What does it smell like? So I started going for seven years to Liverpool. I'd go, I'd do an interview in the morning, an interview in the afternoon, and an interview at night, trying to talk to people that John went to elementary school with and to Corey Bank Grammar at high school, Early band members, of course, Alan Williams, who can who can forget Alan Williams, the lovely Bob Wooler, Helen Anderson, his best friend at Liverpool College of Art, and June Furlong, the life model there. Just so many wonderful people who gave up their time and sat down with me. I went over to the Blue Coat School and talked to them about Stu, and they gave me lots of uh, extra information on Stu Sutcliffe. And I started to learn scouts. I mean, the first year that I was in Liverpool, all I said was, excuse me, what? what? Excuse me? Excuse me? I had no idea what they were saying. Proudly, by about my fourth trip, I didn't dress like an American anymore when I went over there. And I knew my way around. And I, I fit in a little bit better. And people were asking me directions. I was like, yes, I finally fit in. But it takes a while. And you have to also talk to the people who were really there. I took all of the chapters and I sent them to the people that the chapter was about. So Bill Harry said, no, 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 no. You've got me in the wrong room in the crack. You have me sitting in the front room. I never sat there. I sat in the back room. You need to put me under the painting of Lord Nelson. You have me drinking ale, I only drink bitters. So when people are taking their chapters and making them right, it changes everything. And I had to get a level of detail 
that you don't have to have if you're writing a straight history of the Beatles, because you don't need to know what the fireplace looked like. You don't need to know what it smelled like outside the grapes or what the streets were made of. That's not important in a straight history. But when you're telling it as a narrative, you have to know the details. And so for seven years, I did that, then went back, put all of those years together and released book one. And it has been a journey ever since. (laughs) Certainly sounds like it. You talked about the interviewees there. I think it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about about them. Uh, Tell us two things about, about them. Who of the people that you spoke to were there? Was there one or two maybe really outstanding interviews? I'm sure they're all fascinating, but if there were some people that really stood out and at the same time, all these people that you, you spoke to, did they all describe the same John Lennon or was it a real mixture of kind of opinions and views? It's really important to talk to those people. And I'm glad that I got started when I did because they were all still around at that time. And that was before Liverpool was chosen as the capital of culture for the world, because when that happened, they renovated the city and everything changed. I mean, the grapes was completely different. When I went back the next year, I was like, oh my gosh, it doesn't even look like the grapes anymore. The Delft fireplace was removed. Everything was updated. Um, The White Star still looked like the White Star, but the grapes looked completely different. The old post office was gone. They had changed it. So many of the places that I wanted to see and I wanted to get the essence of had been updated and made more current. And that's great for the capital of culture, but it wasn't great for those of us who were doing Beatles research. So I'm glad I went when I did. But I would say one of my most memorable afternoons was going to lunch with Bob Wooler at the the DJ at the Cavern Club. And Bob came with a question, a questionnaire that I had to take before he would give me an interview. And I mean, I was just like, it was like being in school again. And I didn't even, it was a pop quiz because I didn't know he was going to even ask me all of these questions. So he said, okay, here are 10 questions. If you can answer these correctly or most of them correctly, I'll give you the interview. Otherwise we'll just have a nice lunch. Fortunately, I made it through the interview. I had ordered a seafood salad. And when the salad arrived, there was an octopus sitting on top of the salad with the tentacles outspread. Test number two, I was like, oh my goodness, (laughs) this is not something that you ordinarily see in America. So, you know, I I did make it through all of that, had a lovely talk with him. My husband always took notes for me at all of the interviews because I'm busy trying to engage the person and ask questions. And you don't, you know, now we could record it, but at that time you had to actually take notes. And he was busy scribbling down all the notes while I was talking with Bob, had a great lunch. And we, when we walked outside, we were on Lark Lane at a, a restaurant there. And when we walked outside, we were right next to Keith's wine bar, if you ever went to Keith's back in the day. And who should be there but Alan Williams. And Alan's like, oh, hello, Bob, how are you? Well, Alan, imagine seeing you here. Oh, Jim Ram, would you like to go into Keith's Wine Bar? We could sit and visit. And we were there for the next four hours and many bottles of wine later. We had gotten so many great stories and had a wonderful, never-to-be-forgotten afternoon. I had talked to Alan several times before that, but to have the two of them playing off of one another and telling stories and one-upping 
the other one. It was just a great, great experience. And I think my other second great experience, which wasn't an interview, but was just a moment. Um, my husband and I were invited to the Backbeat premiere that was held in Liverpool, the Northern premiere that they had. And luckily, we were going to be in Liverpool at that time. So we didn't make a special trip. We actually were headed in that direction. And just to walk the red carpet and to see all of these people, Cynthia was there that night. And afterwards, there was a dinner at the um, John Lennon bar. And we'd also been invited to a party at the Cavern Club. So we went to the John Lennon bar and had dinner. And I was sitting next to Alan and Beryl. And I said, you know, just if you will excuse us for a few minutes, we really need to go over the cavern and just say hello and we'll be back. And this was after dinner. And they said, okay, fine. We were only gone about a half hour, 45 minutes. We came back and the owner of the John Lennon bar and his wife had taken our seats. Well, that was fine. We just stood by the wall and we were talking to people and uh, Beryl Marsden's sister was there. And I got to visit with her. It was just a great fun time. But Alan says, that's Jude's chair. Get up. And the guy says, I'm not getting up. This is my bar. I'm not getting up. And Alan shoved him and he shoved Alan and they got into a fight. And my husband looked at me and said, if I told you when you were nine years old at that bus queue that the Beatles first manager was going to get into a fight with the John Lennon bar over where you sit, would you have believed me? I said, it is without a doubt the happiest day of my life. <laughs> What a story. What a journey. <laughs> what, a, what a journey. Um, I'm interested to talk a little bit more about your decision to write this as a historical narrative, which you, you, you've covered briefly already. I, personally, I think it is a, it's an incredibly effective way of writing, but it is different. What are the, first of all, what are the challenges around writing John's story in this way? Uh, and was there ever a thought? Was there ever a temptation to, to go on to, to writing a more of a traditional biography of John? Yeah, there's a temptation every single day because this is the slowest process known to man. I, for years, had read many, many books about the Beatles and there were coffee table photo books and there were straight biographies and there were comparative studies and there were books about John's writing and there were books about the Beatles compositions but no one had ever done a book in which it was told as a narrative, but it was factual. And I thought, this is a great niche. This is, a, this is something no one's ever done. What I didn't know then was that a genre existed called fan fiction. I had no idea there was such a thing. And that it, even though Susan Ryan, who is a, a wonderful editor and a meticulous scholar, made sure that any fan fiction that came through her with her rooftop sessions was exemplary work. It was still nevertheless fiction. And I didn't know that this might be considered part of that. I might not have attempted it if I had known that there was such a negative feeling towards fan fiction. So I began to work and write the story. And I submitted an early manuscript to my uncle, Charles Pierce Rowland, who's written about 15 books about the Confederacy and the, the U.S. Civil War. He was the author in residence at the University of Kentucky and was the author in residence at West Point at the War College for years. Very respected author. And I asked him on a vacation that we had together to look over the manuscript. And 
sweet man that he is, he went into his room and was gone like three or four hours and came back and said, you've got a real problem on your hands. And I said, what? He said, this book is going to be, I know it's your life's heart, but it's also going to be your life's heartache because people are going to consider this neither fish nor fowl. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you are writing it in the context of telling a story. So some people are going to consider it to be fiction. And I know that you're making it factual, but that's going to be hard, a hard point for you to get across. And I think it's going to end up being, I think you're going to regret it. But I was dead set on doing it. So I went ahead and did it anyway. When I released the first book, at the end of every chapter, I put my sources and the page number. So Lewison 109, Harry, The Ultimate Beatles Encyclopedia 36, and so on. I thought that that was all you needed to do. And I quickly found out that that wasn't all you need to do, that people still considered it to be fictional. So I started documenting almost every sentence. I type a sentence, I put a footnote, I go to the footnotes and I type out all the sources for that sentence and what the controversies are in that one sentence that I've just written when people don't agree and they tell the story in a different way. Then I write another sentence and I footnote it. Then I write another sentence and then I footnote it. It is the slowest process. Sometimes I have three sentences that are all from the same source and I don't have to footnote but once in a paragraph but it is extremely slow. And I have to be very, very, very careful that I'm not adding to or taking away from what happened. And of course, there are things that I don't know, especially when John is little. When he is in high school, I know that the headmaster called Mimi. I know from one source that when he called, Mimi was cooking I can't remember what it was now, but I think it was steak and something in a skillet. I had have to go back and look at the the notes. I know that John was seated at the table. I know that the headmaster told Mimi that he'd been skipping school for two weeks and and had been going to Julia's. I know the facts, but I don't know what Mimi said when she hung up the phone. And I don't know what John said when she confronted him with the fact that he'd been skipping school. That part, when he's young, I have to imagine. When we get to 1961, from 61 on, I'm good to go because everything they said was recorded. For example, on that day in February of 63, when they're recording Please Please Me in one day, they have the full transcript. They have everything that they said in studio. And John C. Wynn was kind enough to transcribe the whole thing. And I have all of their words. So that's easy. Those Things like that are easy. After 61, I had their dialogue. I have photographs of what they wore every day. And John had a tendency to wear the same shirt for four or five days and then change shirts and wear the same shirt four or five days. Why? I don't know. That's what he did. Um, I know what they ate. I know what they were doing on the plane. I've talked to all the stewardesses. I have a lot of details, so it's much easier. But that first book was a tricky situation because some of that, obviously, I had to imagine what Mimi would say, what John would say, and that sort of thing. But it's been a slow, 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 slow go because I have to document or people are going to jump on me and say, oh, she's just making that up. <laughs> I, I, I can only imagine what it what it, it must be like. The most recent book, the, the, the newest book, is set in, in 1965, halfway through, as we know, the, the Beatles' career. I think it might be interesting to just talk briefly about 
where we find John in 1965. How happy is he? Well, the book is entitled Shades of Life. That's, of course, a phrase from across the universe. But if you take 64, 64 is technicolor. 64 is a bright technicolor photograph. They make their first movie for United Artists, Hard Day's Night. They're excited about it. John writes his first book of poetry and prose, and he has a lot of back writing to call upon, so it's not a difficult task. He's always wanted to be a writer. He's thrilled about releasing this book. They go to America in February and are a huge success, and they're scared. On the way over there, John says to Cynthia, if we fail, we can always come back and say, that we just went over there to meet musicians and to pick up albums and to get ideas. And she's like, John, you're not going to need a fallback. And he's like, no, 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 this is, this is plan B. This is what we're going with. They're so amazed when they hear the noise and realize that it's for them, they're shocked. And then they come back for the North American tour and work themselves to death. Their UK tour is hugely successful Um, They do this world tour in June and they go not only to Sweden, but they go to Hong Kong and to Australia, New Zealand. They are just on top of the world. It's a bright year. And then you have 65 and 65 is a shade of 64. It is the negative of that bright photograph, because what do they do? They do another another Beatles Christmas show. They do another United Artists film, Help. They do, John does another book, A Spaniard in the Works. And this time he has nothing to draw upon because he put all of his good stuff in the last book. He begs, he sends word by Bill Harry to Rod Murray up in Liverpool. Would you please give me my poems and my writings that you have? And Rod says, yeah, I'll give them to you. When you give me the back rent that you owe me, when you ran out and went to Hamburg and you never paid me and I had to pay your rent, you give me that money and you can afford to give me that money and we'll be good. I'll give you the writings. And Brian never tells John that that's occurred and never pays the rent because he thinks John's got enough on his plate with being a Beatle and he doesn't need to be writing on the side. So John has to create this book from nothing. He has to write a whole book while doing the Beatle thing. Not as much fun is book number one. John and Cynthia are still living. They've been living since August of 1964 in that third floor garret upstairs in Kenwood because they are renovating it from a 27-room home to a 16-room home. The workmen get there by 7 a.m. There's noise, there's dirt, there's sawing, there's hammering. It's a horrible place to live. And they're there until May of 1965. Everything, the world tour, they do another, they do a European tour in 65 instead of the world tour, but it's the same, same flavor. Um, They do another North American tour. Everything has already been done. And not only that, but by summer of 1965, two pretty serious things are happening. One, Brian feels, and so do John, George, and Ringo, that the Beatles are being overexposed. George said, even I'm sick of us. I mean, they're everywhere. Everywhere time you turn a corner, there's a picture of the Beatles. They're on placards. They're on buses. They're on on everything. And Brian says, people are starting to dislike you because you're everywhere. I think we ought to cancel the UK tour, make you a little bit more unavailable, 
certainly we're not going to do as much on the BBC, which almost got them into a lawsuit, really. And we are going to pull back and we are not going to be as available. And I think that'll raise the interest level a little bit. Well, Paul absolutely says no. It's not being overexposed that's a problem, Brian. It is the kind of music we're playing. We're too pop. We need to change our style of music. If we do that, we'll be more accepted. So they do end up going on the UK tour. But that was a problem, this overexposure. The other big problem was that when you're at the top of your game, everybody wants to bring you down. And so in 64, they used to ask the Beatles, how long do you think you'll last? But in 65, the question has changed. They still ask that, but now they're asking, aren't the Rolling Stones more popular than you are? Have you heard about this, whatever group is hot at the moment? Aren't they just like you? And they are hungry for anything that the Beatles will do that they can use to prove that they're not good guys. In the Bahamas, they're filming um, Help, and there is a blockade and the press are behind it. And they're trying to film that road scene while they're riding their bicycles and saying, let's go back and face them. And a man must face what he must face and all that stuff. And the journalists plow through the blockade and start getting up on top of the Beatles and actually shove George. And George turns and shoves them back. And John steps in and it's almost a real really but yeah, the last minute, Mal and Neil intervene and they're able to separate everyone. And of course, the next day, there are articles everywhere about, you know, the Beatles think they're too good and they're, they're shoving people and they're brutes and they're common and all of this stuff. And Larry Kane from WFUN in Miami does an interview with them and says, let's set the record straight. What really happened? And they tell their story. The press is after them by 1965. They are, they're not on their side anymore. They don't consider them the darlings anymore. So 1965 is not only a year that's been done before, but it's a year in which tension is all over them. John has taken LSD for the first time at John Riley's home, the home of his dentist, unbeknownst to him, as has George and Cynthia and Patty. And for Cynthia, it's a horrible experience. For Patty Boyd, it's a horrible experience. But it is a great experience for George and John, especially John. With LSD, he can escape the hole in his heart and the feeling that he wasn't loved. He can captain his own ship. He imagines he's captaining a submarine and that the others are in it and he's guiding them to safety. Everything about that experience is good for him. And it starts in the spring of 65, a rift between John and Cynthia that, as we know, is not going to heal. She doesn't want to take drugs. She doesn't want to live in a drug culture. She doesn't want people that are taking drugs coming to her home around her son. And that's never going to heal itself. It's not that they don't love each other. They do. That false narrative is pushed that they never loved each other. They love each other very much. Every night of the 1964 tour, John calls Cynthia. When Brian says, you can't take her with you in February of 64 to America, he says, I'm taking her. When they're in Paris in January of 1964, and John has one day off, the others go sightseeing. John flies home to Liverpool to spend the night with his wife. He does love her, but drugs change everything. And 65 is the year that you see the fissure, you see the crack. 
John's giving an interview to Ray Coleman at the in December of 1964, just before we step into 1965. And he's griping about various and sundry things that irritate him specifically, just because you buy my record, you don't tell me what to do. I don't go to a florist and buy flowers from the florist and then and be holding to the florist because the florist doesn't have to do what I want her to do simply because I bought flowers from her. I can't say to the florist, on the way home tonight, you need to stop and buy a loaf of bread because I bought flowers from you and now you must do what I tell you to do. And that's the way it's being thought of with the Beatles and their fans. The fans buy your record, so you must do what they tell you to do. And, and John is complaining about this. And Paul, who is watching TV, turns around and says, shut up, John, you're bad for my image. You know, it is not a good moment. And that happens more and more as we go through 65, especially with the advent of yesterday. There are so many fissures that begin to happen in 1965. With the first four books, the John Lennon series was on an upward climb as they became more and more successful. And that's a happy story to write. But now we're at the top and we know that as the years progress, they are going to be much more successful in studio, but not necessarily more successful in their personal lives or with each other. And you see the first of that start. So 65 is a, is a turning point for sure. So much to, to think about there. Um, to kind of conclude our, our conversation, Jude, I, I read your piece relatively recently where you, you wrote about, about John, I suppose, in in 2021 and, and John's re- reputation, image, etc. And I, I really, really enjoyed the piece. And we're at this point, obviously, post John's death, the Beatles narrative was unquestionably, I think it's safe to say, was dominated by John. Uh, various different publications from Rolling Stone downward, Philip Norman's shout were very influential in telling us that John was three quarters of the Beatles, etc., etc. Obviously, that's that's inaccurate, and obviously, that's something that now, thankfully, we don't we don't live with. And obviously, as time's gone on in the last, what should we say, fifteen years, ten years, Paul quite rightly and quite fairly has come much more into the picture. And your piece made the point that are we now starting to slightly neglect John? Uh, you made the point that in the yesterday film which came out a few years ago, most of the Beatles songs that were in that were Paul songs. There wasn't as many as many John songs. Had that film been made in 1990, I think it would have been a very different amount of songs that were used in it. Where, do, where does John sit now? Are we in danger, do you feel, of almost forgetting about him as a, a part of the Beatles because we're trying to bury that 80s and 90s narrative? Well, you know, it's it's strange to think about this, but Paul has been around as long as John lived. He's Paul since from 1980 until today has been 40 years and John lived 40 years. So Paul has had 40 more years of creativity, songwriting, touring, being in the public eye and being in control of the Beatles narrative. Rightly so, Paul has a much, much larger catalog than John's catalog. And there are many more songs to play on air than John had because his life is cut short at age 40. But I went on several long trips and listened to the Beatles channel and Sirius XM. And 
at first was just sort of irritated that in an hour you would get six Paul songs, maybe three John songs, one George, one Ringo. And I was like, what's going on here? So I started documenting it. I started listening, writing down, you know, how many times per hour my husband and I traveled from Louisiana up to New York for the Fest for Beatles fans. And we listened almost nonstop. That's a long drive. And we recorded how many times? Well, that's exactly the way it would go. It would be predominantly Paul, a smattering of John, one George, one Ringo. Every now and then you get two Ringos. So that first really was galling because we forget that, as you say, for a long time, this was John's group. He rules, please, please me, and with the Beatles and help and Beatles for sale uh, and Hard Day's Night. It's only when you get to Rubber Soul that Paul begins to step forward. And by Revolver, of course, Paul is, is dominating the record. And the more John is slips into it, the drug culture and slips away from happiness and into another world, he gives up the leadership of the Beatles. And until the White Album, Paul is going to dominate. So we all know. I mean, that's just the facts. That's the way it goes. But I, yes, I don't want people to forget that John still has a large, lovely catalog that we need to draw upon. There were two people that really guided the Beatles. John, definitely in the early years, Paul in the later years, and then two forces almost working against each other in the last few years. Thankfully, we know with the advent of the new Let It Be documentary that they still were friends. They still got along. They still laughed. But they were always, from day one, highly competitive. And that was good because because they were competitive, they worked off of each other to give us excellent music. Well, if you could do that, then look what I can do. Oh, you did that? Well, watch what I can do. And it was a very good and healthy competition. But we not only have the danger of forgetting about John and minimizing his creations, but we have sanitized John. And that's the part that I really object to. I know that in the film yesterday, you're looking at an alternate existence, an alternate world. So I get that part of it. But the John that's in that film is not John Lennon. That is an alternate John. And yet I think that's the John that some people believe in. John wearing the white suit with the dove circling his head, who is all about peace. And yeah, come on. John Lennon almost didn't go with Brian Epstein as a manager because he didn't want Brian to change them. He was used to wearing leathers, throwing sandwiches at the audience, swearing at the audience. The audience would yell at them. They'd yell back. Stopping a song midstream and being the hard Northern man that he was, to see him just as a peacenik with no strong passion John was always a very strong personality. So I think when someone dies, we have a tendency to sweep them into sainthood. And that is the very last thing John would want. He would want to be remembered as a man, as good, as bad, as peaceful, as violent. He said, I'm a violent man. I'm jealous. I'm, you know, I'm always shivering inside. We got to remember he was real and, and, and keep it honest and keep it factual and not take it into some imaginary scenario of John. So 
I don't, I am in no way diminishing the catalog of Paul McCartney. I went to see Paul in Bossier City, Louisiana, about three years ago. Oh my gosh, he never stopped. He performed for almost three hours. He ran, he jumped, he sang, he played different instruments. He's a dynamo and he is an unequaled composer. I mean, the man is fabulous. There's no doubt about it. But to say that someone is great is not to diminish someone else. They were both great and we need to give both of them their due. What a great way to end you. It's been been a really fascinating time talking to you and uh, we wish you continued uh, success in writing this fascinating series of books. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joe. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it.